Hello and welcome. You're listening to me, Alice, on the Backtracker History Show podcast. Join me as we go delving through the archives to find out about people, places and events that happened in the past. These were stories that were big news in their day, but are largely forgotten now. Most of these podcasts have been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. And one of the great things about this podcast is that I can go into more detail about each story because there are no time constraints. And it's really easy to show your support just by spreading the word, leaving reviews and sharing with all your family and friends. It really does help. If you want to get in touch with me with show ideas, comments or information, you can via Twitter or Facebook by using at Backtracker UK with a capital B, capital T and a capital UK or emailing me at info at backtracker.co.uk Now, on with the show. Today's sad tale occurred in the year 1926, and here are a few other events that happened that year. On January the 26th, Scottish inventor John Logie Baird demonstrates a mechanical television system at his London laboratory for members of the Royal Institution and a reporter from the Times. April the 7th saw an assassination attempt against Italian fascist leader Benito Mussolini failing. On May the 4th, the United Kingdom general strikes begin at midnight in support of a strike by coal miners. Then, on May the 9th, following the strike, martial law is declared in the United Kingdom. July the 10th saw a bolt of lightning strike Picatinny Arsenal in New Jersey. The resulting fire causes several million pounds of explosives to blow up in the next two to three days. On August the 6th, Gertrude Adur becomes the first woman to swim the English Channel, from France to England. Only five men had been able to swim the English Channel before Adur. The best time had been 16 hours, 33 minutes, by Enrique Tiraboshi. Adur walked up the beach at Kingsdown, England, after 14 hours and 34 minutes. The first person to greet her was a British immigration officer who requested a passport from the bleary-eyed, waterlogged teenager. On October the 14th, A.A. A. Milne's children's book, Winnie the Pooh, is published in London. On October the 31st, magician Harry Houdini dies of gangrene and peritonitis that had developed after his appendix ruptured. And lastly, December the 3rd, Agatha Christie disappears from her home in Surrey, only to reappear again on December the 14th in a Harrogate hotel. But today's events occurred on the 7th of September in Burghill Court near Hereford, after a butler was told his services were no longer needed. (laughs) Word on the street. This one made me laugh. This week, I give you Fishing Fleet, where unmarried British women were sent to India each year by their parents during the cool weather to find husbands, mainly in the military. 
That is an old Edwardian term. On the 13th of September 1926, 45-year-old Charles Horton's magisterial investigation began. He was accused of the murder of sisters Miss Eleanor Drinkwater Woodhouse, aged 60, and Miss Martha Gordon Woodhouse, aged 57, who had employed him as their butler at Burghill Court near Hereford. Horton had been working and living at the property for 21 years and was, in fact, the only man in the house. Charles Horton was described by a Mr E. Appleby, who lived nearby, as someone who was always friendly and with a kind disposition, always ready to do a good turn for anyone and a favourite with the children of the cottagers, with a copper or two for any he met. Horton also used to play football for Burghill United until a few years before the crime, and he always spoke highly of the two sisters. In the later years, though, his conduct had become quite sketchy, not helped by the fact that he had begun to drink heavily. Therefore, after many warnings, the sisters decided that enough was enough and he had to be dismissed, a decision that was hastened on August the 31st when Horton served them their dinner whilst obviously drunk. The sisters, though, waited until their cousin, Mr Ernest Jackson, came to visit. They wanted to confer with him, and also felt safer having him there when they broke the news to Horton. This they did on the 6th of September. Horton was told that his conduct on the 31st of August was the final straw, and Eleanor explained that Jackson was there so that he might be a witness that here was no feeling of anger on her part. When presented with the reason why he was being dismissed, Horton didn't deny that he had been drunk on that day. In fact, he claimed that the cook hadn't given him enough to eat, and so he'd had to drink alcohol to sustain himself. The ladies gave him a month's wages in lieu of notice and offered to pay him a few extra days up to the end of the week. But Horton replied that he deserved more than 24 hours' notice of dismissal due to the fact that he had worked for them for so long. Eventually, the sisters gave in, and it was arranged that Horton would stay on until the end of the week, at the very latest. The following morning, September the 7th, Eleanor Woodhouse was discussing the day's housekeeping with the cook in the kitchen, and as she was leaving, a shot was fired. Eleanor fell dead against the kitchen door. Within a second or two of the first shot, another rang out. And Martha Woodhouse lay dying, not far from the back door. Horton was eventually found in his room, bleeding from seven throat wounds he'd made with a razor. He said to Superintendent Weaver who'd found him, Oh dear, this is a bad job. Super! And added, It was passion. But when charged, he made no comment. The prosecutor, Mr Palling, said in court, Prisoner's duties in the house were extremely light for a house of that size, so much so that he used to spend the morning shooting if he felt disposed in the grounds of the house, which comprised about 300 acres. 
Mr. Jackson, who was a somewhat frequent visitor, had two guns, one of which the prisoner used, and this gun was kept in the butler's pantry. <laughs> Word on the street. Today, let's take a stroll down Points Court in BS15 Bristol, named after Sir Anthony Points who was appointed Warden of Kingswood Forest in 1529. The family lived at Iron Acton Court and were prominent in local and national affairs from the early 14th century for more than 350 years. Sir Anthony received his knighthood in 1513. He was a naval captain in the fleet which sailed against France and he attended Henry VIII at the Field of the Cloth of Gold. The last member of the family, Sir John, died in 1680, with no successor. Ernest Jackson, schoolmaster at Christ's College and a cousin of the dead ladies, said that on the 7th of September he was visiting Burghill Court. While in the smoke room, he heard a crash immediately followed by another. He quickly realised he'd heard gunshots. Jackson immediately went for help and found the body of Martha and then Eleanor. He then went to the butler's pantry and saw the gun in its usual place, and when he checked it, he found two spent cartridges. In court, Jackson described the meeting, telling Horton about his dismissal, and then said that on the day of the shootings, Horton had acted normally, going to morning prayers and serving breakfast. It was the job of Dr. J. Vincent Shaw to examine the bodies of the two sisters. In court, he described the wounds and said that death was due to shock and blood loss from gunshot wounds. The wounds indicated that the two ladies had held up their hands to protect themselves and the gun must have been fired at close range. He also attended to Horton's superficial throat wound, which might have been caused by a razor. Mrs. Smith, the cook, said that shortly before the tragedy, Horton was acting the same as he always did. Nothing was untoward, and she didn't have any clue of what was about to happen. Mr. John Town, the coachman at the court, told how he had met Horton early on the morning of the murders. He'd asked how he was feeling, and Horton replied, Not too well, John. Mr. Town went on to say that Horton had been given notice before, but after a day or two had apologised for his behaviour and been given another chance. Mr. Town continued relaying the events of that fateful day by saying, Just before 10 o'clock, Miss May came and gave me my orders for the day, but didn't say anything about Horton. A short time afterwards, I was on the grounds when the gardener came rushing towards me shouting, It's happened, John! I said, Whatever do you mean? And the gardener said he shot him. I immediately ran into the house and saw Miss May lying in the back door entrance with her head towards the yard and her feet towards the wall. She was bleeding from the left wrist and above the heart and I at once thought that she must have stooped a little and put up her left hand to guard the shot. I lifted up her head and she seemed to recognise me but she didn't call my name. She was not a strong woman and as she was struggling I held her wrists and tried to get her away from the wall in case she should hurt herself. By this time, Horton had gone to his bedroom. The doctor and police soon arrived, but it was no good. 
When the charges were read out at the initial hearing, Horton said, I don't wish to say anything. He was then committed to trial at Hereford Assizes, which were held on the 5th of November, and Horton's sister spoke up for him, saying that between the ages of 7 and 11, he'd had fits, which caused him to foam at the mouth. Dr Cyril Francis of Hereford had examined Horton and said that he'd appeared to be quite normal, but believed the symptoms he found to point towards epilepsy. He thought Horton may have lost mental control at the time of the crime. It was at this point that the judge intervened and asked, are you prepared to swear that, in your opinion, he was in fact so insane as not to know what he was doing? The reply was, I said possibly, my lord. I cannot swear. During the trial, Dr James Bell, medical officer for Gloucester Prison, came and said that in his opinion, Horton had not shown any signs of insanity, mental disease or epilepsy. He didn't think that Horton had an epileptic fit on the day of the tragedy. Eventually, after summing up, Horton was found guilty and sentenced to death. The actual date of the execution was delayed due to a pending appeal against the sentence, which was eventually withdrawn. Horton's solicitors, Mr Corner and Wadsworth, had sent the Home Secretary further evidence about Horton's state of mind in the hope of a reprieve to save their client from the scaffold. But the Home Secretary regretted that he was unable to interfere with the sentence. Shortly before 8am on Friday the 3rd of December 1926, the folding doors separating the condemned cell from the execution chamber were opened and Horton, wearing the same blue suit he wore at his trial, only had a few steps to make to take him to the place where he would die. Renowned executioner Pierpoint, along with his assistant Robert Wilson, were commissioned to complete the task. They had arrived the day before, and regulations stated that they couldn't leave the prison until the sentence had been carried out. At 8pm on Thursday evening, 12 hours before the execution, as required by the regulations, a notice was posted on the entrance doors of the prison, signed by the High Sheriff of Herefordshire and the Governor of the Jail, announcing the hour of the execution. On Friday morning, there were only a few people outside the gates, and they were the press and a small number of workmen who happened to be in the area. Shortly after 7.30am, the bell of St Mary's Lode commenced tolling, and at 7.40, the chaplain proceeded by another gentleman entered the portals of the prison. Five minutes later, the undersheriff for Herefordshire went in, followed by Dr J. A. Bell, the prison medical officer. The governor, Mr H. White, arrived just after 7.45. Just before 8, the bells of St Mary de Lode were ringing with longer intervals, and then at 8am, they stopped. At 8.15, two notices were posted on the prison gates. They read, We, the undersigned, hereby declare that judgment of death was this day executed on Charles Horton, 
in His Majesty's Prison of Gloucester, in our presence, dated this third day of December 1926. I, James Adamson Bell, the surgeon of His Majesty's Prison of Gloucester, hereby certify that I this day examined the body of Charles Horton, on whom judgment of death was this day executed in the said prison, and that on examination I found that the said Charles Horton was dead. Dated this third day of December, 1926. Horton was buried in the prison grounds, in a space reserved for such offenders, against the North Wall. As for Martha and Eleanor, the victims of this tragedy, they were daughters of the late Mr and Mrs Woodhouse, who had come to Burghill Court from Liverpool 50 years before, with their children, Eleanor, Martha and son Gordon, when they weren't even teenagers. Their father was a wine merchant who had died about 30 years before the daughters and their mother died in May 1923 at the advanced age of 93 years. Mrs Woodhouse had won the title of Burghill's benefactress and when she completed 30 years residence in the parish 401 parishioners presented her with an illuminated dress in a gold frame. For some time after their mother's death, Eleanor and Martha continued to live at Burghill Court, which had been left to their brother, Mr Gordon Woodhouse, who had taken up residence there and remained for some months. Whilst Gordon was living the house, the two sisters went to live at Munston in Hereford, and eventually an arrangement was made and they returned permanently to their former home in April 1925. There, they were warmly welcomed by the inhabitants of Burkhill, mainly due to their generosity and sense of social awareness. They were always active in good works, and very generous with their time and funds, to help make Burkhill a better place for everyone. Eleanor was a manager of the village school, a member of the parochial church council and honorary secretary of the local branch of the North Hereford Women's Unionist Association. Martha was also associated with the church and the Women's Unionist Association and both were generous supporters of the Burghill Horticultural Society. They were also regular visitors of the poor and needy of the parish and at Christmas time they were very, very generous. The sisters took their religion very seriously, and so the local church also enjoyed their generosity. Eleanor had had the altar rails repaired at her own cost. Their parents were interred in Burghill Churchyard, and if you go inside, you'll find tablets in the church dedicated to their memory. The two sisters, Eleanor and Martha, were buried together on the 10th of September in Burghill. Their favourite pet pony appeared as part of the funeral procession, drawing a carriage full of wreaths. Just days before Horton was executed, details emerged of the sisters' last will and testament. Miss Martha had left an estate of £29,314 and Eleanor £38,621, a total of more than £2 million in today's money. Here's an interesting little tidbit. 
Through a donation made only days before the murders, you can see the carriage or baroche that the sisters owned in Hull's Street Life Museum, where it's been nicknamed the Murder Carriage. Eleanor had sent a letter to the Hull Museums agreeing to donate the carriage. A baroche was a type of carriage widely used in the 19th century. It has a retractable cover like a modern-day convertible and was often seen during the summer being enjoyed by the higher classes of society. Now, just four days after the murder, the national newspapers were talking about the delivery of the coach to Hull that was once owned by the murdered sisters. And rumours quickly spread around Hull that the sisters had been murdered in the carriage. The barrage had been bought for about £210, around £9,000 now, at the famous Crystal Palace exhibition in 1862. It was made by a company called King & Co, well known for their coach building prowess. And apart from new cushions, little has been done to it. So, let's talk about you. Actually, let's talk about me, just for a bit, because I was like you. In 40-odd years, I hadn't done much exercise, but I knew I had to start. So, I got the Couch to 5K app. From not being able to run for more than a minute, nine weeks later, I was running for half an hour. It's simple, it's free, and it's all planned out. With a little support, it's amazing what your body can do. Join thousands of monthly users. Download the free One You Couch to 5K app now, because there's only one you. In the news today, a man went into a bookstore and saw a book titled How to Solve 50% of Your Problems. He went on to buy two. Back in the day facts. Let's start with the 29th of April 1967, when Aretha Franklin releases her single Respect, which was written by Otis. Also on the 29th of April 1974, the United States President, Richard Nixon, announces the release of edited transcripts of White House tape recordings relating to the Watergate scandal. On the 30th of April 1789, on the balcony of Federal Hall on Wall Street in New York City, George Washington takes the oath of office to become the first President of the United States. The 1st of May 1707 sees the Act of Union, joining England and Scotland to form the Kingdom of Great Britain. The 2nd of May 1536, Anne Boleyn, Queen of England is arrested and imprisoned on charges of adultery, incest, treason and witchcraft. On the 3rd of May, 1978, the first unsolicited bulk commercial email, which we now know as spam, is sent by a digital equipment corporation marketing representative to every R-Pennant address on the west coast of the United States. The 4th of May 1471 sees the Battle of Tewkesbury in Gloucestershire, the final battle between the House of Lancaster and York. The Prince of Wales, Edward of Westminster, is killed, and King Edward IV returns to his throne, restoring political stability to England until his death in 1483. 
And lastly, on the 5th of May, 1260, Kublai Khan, grandson of Genghis Khan, becomes ruler of the Mongol Empire. Unfortunately, that's the end of today's show. And I'd love to know what you thought of today's tale. As always, I'd like to take a moment to thank those people who brought today's story to life. And we have this week Steve Shepard from Bradley Stoke Radio, as well as Molly Jeffries, Sam Roberts, Tony Allen, Joe Wilson and Andrea Reed from the St. Stephen's Drama Group in Bristol. Thank you, one and all. Thank you once again for listening to me, Alice, on the Backtracker History Show. If you'd like to get in touch with me, you can find me on Twitter or Facebook by looking up at Backtracker UK with a capital B, a capital T and a capital UK. I also occasionally post onto TikTok and Instagram. So do come along and find me because it's amazing to hear from you and get some feedback or even ideas for future shows. As a small independent podcaster, your help and support is always appreciated. And one way you can do that is to rate the show wherever you get your podcasts. Leaving a review also helps as it gives other people an idea of what the show's about. The show is regularly released on Mondays. So until next time, guys, take care and look after each other. (laughs) 